can oppressed people truly be freed by legal recognition and inclusion? What can we do to make our voices heard when the laws in the books aren't happening in the streets? Dean Spade is an organizer, speaker, and author, and is a professor at Seattle University's School of Law. Spade has been organizing racial and economic movements for queer and trans liberation for the past 20 years. Spade's works include the books Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and The Limits of Law, published originally in 2011, with the second edition published in 2015, and Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next. Dean Spade, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thank you. And so before we get the conversation going, to share with our listeners a passage from your book, Normal Life, that gives a window onto your wider work. Yeah. I just pulled up something from the afterword that I wrote to the second edition that I think just kind of summarizes what some of the big themes in Normal Life are that were really central. So here's what I said. The belief that marginalized and hated populations can find freedom by being recognized by law, allowed to serve in the military, allowed to marry, and protected by anti-discrimination law and hate crime statutes is a central narrative of the United States. Politicians, primary school textbooks, and the corporate media tell us the story that the United States left ugly histories of white supremacy behind through a civil rights movement that changed hearts, minds, and especially laws to eradicate racism and bring freedom to all. This simplified narrative is relentlessly reiterated in U.S. culture and has played a starring role in the past four decades of lesbian and gay rights advocacy, where the analogy to the Black Civil Rights Movement has been a consistent rhetorical tool. I argue that social movements must abandon the widely held belief that oppressed people can be freed by the United States legal system or legal recognition and inclusion if we are to truly address and transform the conditions of premature death facing impoverished and criminalized populations right now. It's such an important point. I think that people think the law will solve everything. And there's such a, an ecosystem and a mentality and a history you have to overcome to, to bring people in and to allow them to flourish and live lives of what everyone wants, equality and respect. Just tell us a little bit about your journey. What inspired you to become involved in transgender activism? I grew up in Virginia and my mom was like a poor single mom who hadn't finished high school. And so a lot of my early childhood childhood was about being very poor and being on welfare and seeing my mom's struggles to try to like get paid equally to men at her low wage jobs and also being in schools that were in intensely racially segregated and really like seeing blatant anti-black racism everywhere, which my mom told me was wrong. So I had I think a lot of early frustration and consciousness about sexism and racism around me. And, you know, as I became a teenager, I was in foster care and I was becoming feminist, like as much as I could find anything about that. And I just was like, I knew that I was not in the right place. And I knew that I was interested in liberation, but I didn't have a lot of words or frames for that or a lot of access to information about social movement, of course, because I was just going to like public school in Virginia and, you know, there wasn't the internet and there wasn't even cable TV out where I lived. So it was limited what I could access, but I found a few things at the library. And so then I left home and I went really far away and I went to California and I went to New York and I was on my own trying to find my way. And I found radical people. And I found out about queers, which I didn't know about when I was in Virginia. I found people who were doing different kinds of feminist things. And I basically came of age in New York City when Rudy Giuliani was mayor. And there was a really widespread coalition of people pushing back against his politics, he, the ways he attacked people on welfare, the ways that he was zoning sex work out of Times Square and quote unquote cleaning up the city, the drastic increase in policing. 
And so this kind of broad-based, anti-racist, poverty-centered politics, I was working with a lot of queer people who had been part of fighting for the well-being of people with HIV and AIDS and people with psychiatric disabilities. And I mean, it was, it was a very coalitional moment. And I was doing it with a bunch of young queer people, but also very intergenerational spaces as well. And that's where I really learned my politics and then started to increasingly identify as trans and come out as trans. And somewhere along the way in there in the late 90s, I went to law school. I think, you know, that was partly motivated by just like being a working class person. And this is the way that I could like have a job, but also change things. And when I went to law school, I learned about critical race theory and learned this critique of formal legal equality or of kind of winning rights in law. And it really fit with what I saw from the on the street, you know, from the politics I'd been practicing in New York City in a very like local direct way that included a lot of direct action and civil disobedience and things like that. And it made sense to me like, yeah, like this legal system is never going to guarantee people things. And so as you can imagine, I'm coming in the mid 90s period into political consciousness. I'm working with all these people who care about poverty and immigration and racism. We're seeing the rise of this white centered gay and lesbian rights politics in the U.S. that like wants to join the military and wants to have gay cops and wants to like, you know, kind of get married, like this kind of assimilationist, liberal gay politics. And we are all really opposed to that. We're like, that's not what queer liberation is about. It's anti-capitalist. It's anti-U.S. military. It's anti-police. And then as trans politics is growing in some kind of ways in the 90s, and there was kind of like an, a different emergence in, in the threads of trans politics, there was this explicit debate, like, let's not have it go the way of gay and lesbian rights. Let's not copy that model that doesn't really benefit the people in our communities who are super criminalized, super poor, super deportable. And that's a lot of what normal life was about, was like this kind of neoliberal version of a social movement is terrible for the people who actually are at the front lines of suffering under the conditions we live under. Let's articulate a trans politics that centers prison abolition, that centers border abolition, that that doesn't invest in like a fantasy that the United States is like a place where people like become equal under the law. Yeah. Equality is not to be the same. I mean, one has one's own identity. And I think that's so important. And it just shows, you know, a lot of these movements, as you've observed and know deeply, there have been segregation in the LGBTQ plus communities when you have to kind of choose what your battles are and what you're going to fight for. And then being, you know, historically pitted against each other because you might have different experiences of the police, say, if you're white or black, it's a different, you're in your different communities. So just express a little bit about this coming together and how being, you know, stronger together and appreciating those different perspectives, but the intersectionality of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one way to think about this is like there's been two queer and trans movements. There are two main threads. And one of them should just be understood as conservative. If it's about being pro-police, getting to have gay people be in the FBI and the CIA, like literally, you know, like getting to have gay people be soldiers in U.S. military imperialism, that is a conservative right wing politics. It's complicated. In the U.S., the idea of queer and trans people is considered like, you know, abhorrent to the right wing. And so then therefore anything you do that's pro-gay is supposed to be like left or liberation, but it's not. So in reality, in the U.S., there's always been these two threads. There's been what became highly visible, that very conservative gay and lesbian rights politics. But there's also always been an anti-racist, anti-colonial, queer and trans politics like that has centered poverty and race and colonialism. It just doesn't get the headlines of the corporate media or it doesn't get sponsored by like Budweiser because of what it is about. And that's the same way in, in feminism, right? In feminism, there is like a white women's framing that's very limited to accessing, you know, 
certain kinds of positions, like we're going to have liberation when women run the big defense contractors and when women are in the military. And then there's always been like a women of color feminist, anti-colonial feminist framework that's like, no, we won't have gender liberation until we end colonialism, until we end racism. So these two threads in any movement produce really different agendas for transformation, right? Like it's like, who are you thinking about when you imagine the subject of this liberation and what kinds of problems do they have in their life? So if you're thinking that the subject of this liberation is like a white gay man who wants to marry his partner from England so they can have immigration and come over, that's going to be a different policy agenda than if you think the subject of this is a Latina trans woman who's in the detention center. Like she has a different set of things that need to change for her to be free and well and survive. You know, the politics of the kind of intersectional formations I'm talking about, we believe in starting with who's in the most danger and building our agenda based on that. So if you fix things for that woman in the detention center, inevitably things will have gotten better for that white guy who wants to marry his partner because he will have dealt with this horrible border system. But it, but you could fix it for him and not fix it for her, right? So what we want to do is, you know, I've historically talked about this as like a trickle up justice. Like we want to go to where people are facing the worst dangers and be like, what would the solution look like there? And inevitably that'll help people who are in less danger. And it's also just ethical. Like if there's a bus accident, we're going to like go try to deal with who's bleeding out before we go with like who got a small bump, right? Right? Like, and that, unfortunately, in, in the U.S., there's been a long history of social movements abandoning people who are in the worst danger and instead choosing to focus on people who are the most palatable to those in power. So being like, oh, well, what about the immigrant who has no criminal history and, and isn't the valedictorian and wants to serve in the U.S. military? And maybe we can get that person and could, could go to college paying for it themselves. Let's get that person a, a pathway to immigration. That's a common thing. And let's find the trans person who people don't know is trans when they see them and they have a job and they're white and they have citizenship and they've never been in prison. When we choose those people as our like our mascots and we articulate an idea that's who's deserving of rights, that's often the way it's framed, like we're hard workers or like we're citizens. Those kinds of talking points, that framing affirms the current system that keeps certain people hyper disposable and in danger. And so you see this across social movements about every issue is like, are we going to dig into where the worst dangers are and where the most complex harms are happening? People have multiple systems hurting them. It's not one easy, quick story that if you just fix this, they'd be fine. Actually, there's like 16 things hurting them because there's so much injustice. That's, I mean, I think of that as being how we talk about intersectionality and about the, it's not just like, there's a lot going on in people's lives. It's like, how are we going to create an agenda that would actually solve things for people who have more complex targeting happening to them? And how can everybody be in solidarity and have everybody get behind that agenda instead of having the people who have an easier path to getting in on the current systems kind of like leave everyone else behind? That's really um, important to define. It's a true sense of justice. And it's like you're talking about those instances of those uh, mascots that are almost like you're allowed to cross boundaries and to succeed almost by virtue of your invisibility, like passing, like somebody who could pass. Oh, you could just pass? Well, okay, come on in. You can just masquerade yourself almost. And that's not respecting people's sense of self and identity. And I really, and I saw that you also campaigned your activists against the apartheid situation in Israel, which can't be easy. You know, we're talking about human rights. It's freedoms, not just in America, but elsewhere. And it, it takes a lot of courage to stand up for those who, a lot of people are afraid or the media just won't even cover it. Yeah, yeah. I have been active in trying to support movements for Palestinian liberation, especially from the U.S. That feels really significant because we fund Israeli apartheid. The U.S., you know, is the big donor for that um, horrible colonial project. And I'm Jewish and there's a way in which the project of Israeli colonialism is done in the name of Jews. And it's really important, I think, for Jews to be like, no, that 
I don't, that doesn't make me safe. That's not what I want for the world. That doesn't improve my life as a Jewish person. That's not what I'm seeking. And then also, I think in, in, in the years that I've been really active on this in the last 20 years, there's been a particular focus for Israel to market itself as like this modern, innovative, technologically savvy, diverse country. And it's been about, it's, it's an explicit effort to rebrand the country, which people all over the world see as like an apartheid state. And so they've branded that in part by something that people call pinkwashing, which is they've done a lot of marketing to say like, hey, we're gay inclusive. We care about queer and trans people. And they've done a lot of marketing around the fact that gay people can serve in their military and trans people can. There's like, there was a guy for a while who's like an officer high up in the Israeli military who was trans and they would send him on speaking tours all over Europe and North America to like kind of promote this image that Israel is a great place because it's queer and trans friendly. And that kind of use of queer and trans liberation symbols and ideas to cover over colonialism is so dangerous and terrible. And so there's been a lot of pushback by queer and trans activists all over the world against that, that I've been part of. And I made a documentary that people can watch about this that's free online called pinkwashingexposed.net. And it's captioned in a bunch of different languages in case that's a useful idea. And part of the reason we made that documentary is because the Israeli consulate and government will pay and different Zionist organizations will pay people to do these tours. And so they'll bring like gay movies from Israel to your town or they'll bring gay speakers from Israel to your town. And people don't know that it's propaganda for colonialism. And so they're just like, sweet, an international gay event. Love it. And so we really want people to know what this thing is and like be able to see through the propaganda. And, uh, you know, pinkwashing is something the U.S. government also does. The U.S. government, you know, Obama's second term was all about being like, look, I'm a gay friendly president. Meanwhile, I'm, you know, keeping people in Guantanamo and, you know, doing drone strikes and, and, you know, Biden's the same way. Like they love to like push forward a gay-friendly agenda. That's very thin. That's just symbols. It's not actually changing the lives of queer and trans people on the ground. It's not dealing with how many of us are in detention centers and prison. But that move, you know, Israel and the U.S. really have in common. And we want to kind of name that in all the places where it is. But yes, you're right. It is very hard work to do. It's like that's the work where I get the most death threats. It's a very intense, high stakes adversarial situation in which it's so vital for us all to come out on the side of justice. Indeed. Well, I hope that everyone gets a chance to, to view that. It, it's terrible when something that you believe in is being used to Trojan horse something else that's an, in your name. And if you stop to think that's not something that you would believe in and should be adding your name to or, or even giving this kind of related support, which is a, a terrible thing that does happen. Um, Monica, just tell us, you know, what drew you to Dean's work? I was first introduced to your work through my social justice activism and cultural studies class in my grad program and just found it very revolutionary for my own thinking and how I was going to approach the world. Mutual Aid was the more recent book of yours that we read in my class, and I just love that it gave tactile actions to do to assist in your community. So that's definitely what drew me to your work. Thanks for reading. It's so fun to hear. So I, I think that what you were previously talking about actually segues really well into my first question. I would just really love to hear your thoughts on the present neoliberal landscape in the wake of more recent events such as the COVID-19 pandemic, Me Too, the, although there has always been anti-trans legislation, we have seen more of a rise of it, especially in discussions in the media. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, the current landscape, there's so much to say. That's a great question. 
Yeah. So I, there's so many things that I wouldn't have anticipated that are happening right now. Right? I would never have anticipated kind of like a, the mainstreaming of trans stuff generally that happened around 2013. Like there was 2014, there was just like a sudden mainstreaming. Caitlyn Jenner was on the cover of Vanity Fair. We started to see trans people represented in like TV shows a bit more. That mainstreaming was surprising. I think it's really important to say that mainstreaming, I think people assume that it's liberatory if you see more of a group of hated people in public roles or something. But generally what happens is that you get like the deployment of deserving figures like Caitlyn Jenner or Laverne Cox, like look at these beautiful trans women, they're okay, but it actually can often reifies stigma around people who are still being seen as disgusting or seen mm -hmm. as unacceptable. And and usually what happens is there's also a kind of moment of like, these people, they're actually okay. Let's do some very thin policy solutions about their problems that don't necessarily help them at all. So things like anti-discrimination laws and hate crime laws that kind of stay where you go under the law, but don't really change the conditions in people's lives at all. And then you usually get a huge backlash that actually makes people's lives worse. So I, mainstreaming is not like a positive thing. It's just like a thing that happens. And and we're living through a pretty extreme backlash that, of course, is not just because of the mainstreaming. It's also because of the rise of the right wing and fascism in the United States. And it's particular, one of the things it's got its hold on is, which is not surprising, is gender and sexual politics. And it's using queer and trans people's lives and particularly trans people's lives and also reproductive um, health issues as a way to recruit people into a politics that's actually like really terrible for them, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a few things that are interesting about this. Like one thing is it's interesting to look at the arguments in normal life and mutual aid against this moment. Like one danger of having all this anti-trans legislation popular is that people think, oh my God, the answer is in the law. So it's true that bad laws are bad, but like the amount of harm in trans people's lives often doesn't matter about the laws in the jurisdiction. You can live in a jurisdiction that has a law that says trans people are equal and you can still be a trans woman put into the men's prison. That's typical, right? Or you can't get into the homeless shelter, right? Like, like, or you could live in a jurisdiction that has really bad anti-trans law and you could actually have a community of people who are providing you things you need and you feel really safe. Like, it's so much more complicated. It's not just like the law determines how our lives are. And that's really important because it helps us know how to fight back. And so if we become only obsessed with changing the law, well, most of us can't do anything about the law in Tennessee. Like I can't sit here in Washington state and be like, what's going on in Tennessee? When in reality, I know people who are sending medications to people in Tennessee, that's mutual aid, like the direct stuff or sending money to people in Tennessee who are getting out of prison, trying to figure out how to support them. Here in Seattle, where I live, trans people are also homeless. Like, and trans people are getting out of foster care unhoused. And, you know, there's so much I can do right here. Instead of being like, all that matters is the law show. And it feels like a celebrity sideshow of like, what are politicians doing? Oh, look at those terrible politicians. I hope they do the right thing. Or look at that good one. I hope they fix it. And that's very disempowering for us politically. We could just be like, oh no, I can do stuff right now in solidarity with people right where I already am, wherever we already are. Trans people are suffering. Lots of people aren't getting the reproductive health care they need. Like that's happening everywhere already. It wasn't like that was going well before like Roe was overturned or and, and also, I can have solidarity with people in other jurisdictions if that by building communities, real community, usually through a mutual aid network. So a lot of what my work is about is this story that we're going to fix things through law or that law totally determined our life is really disempowering. And we want to move towards what can we all actually do to create the conditions to survive right now. And when we talk about today's conditions, we have to talk about ecological crisis. Like things are getting way hotter really fast in every way. So everyone in our communities is facing a much worse danger. If you live in substandard housing and now it's flooding in New York City, that's going to be much worse than it was before it was flooding. On every front, 
our food systems are in crisis, our energy systems are in crisis. And so the more mutual aid work we do to build community connection, to know our neighbors, to know how to get things we need to each other, to learn how to make decisions together, to learn how to act when crisis comes up and not call the police or other things like that that are harmful, the more ready we are for the next disasters that are coming next month and next month and next month for the rest of our lives. And so to me, mutual aid is both the, the way to be more politically effective, also the way to build activated, mobilized communities instead of passive communities that just wait to vote and hope that the politicians will do the right thing and like watch TV and get stressed out. And it's a way to prepare for the current and coming crises that are going to define the rest of our lives and already do. I mean, the crisis of living in the most imprisoning country in the world, the crisis of living in a country that has, you know, this massive militarized border, the crisis of living under extreme economic inequality and having so many people not have the basic things they need, but rent is like higher than it's ever been and food is more expensive than it's ever been. Plus the storm and the fire and the smoke and the extreme cold weather and all the things we've seen killing people in our communities and in increasing numbers. And the answer has to be like immediate action with each other instead of, God, I hope that Bernie Sanders fixes it for me or the mayor or whatever. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned because we have a One Planet podcast that is devoted to the environment. And I'm so, I'm so glad that the reaching across that intersectionality of these issues, because I really feel governments or politicians will, as you say, pit groups against each other. Oh, that's what you care about. We actually have to care about this together. So for you, in terms of changing people's day-to-day -day experiences, how important is that storytelling to change people's lives? Yeah, I think we live our lives through stories. We really do. And so, and that's a good example that you were just saying historically certain kinds of social movements have been siloed from each other so people have been told for example there was there's been a long history of a white dominated colonial environmental movement in the United States that didn't care about feminism and didn't care about people of color and made a lot of people think that environmentalism was like an issue for like white rich people who like want to go hiking or something. And then the reality is, of course, that the people who pay the biggest price from environmental crisis are people of color, people who work in polluting industries, people who live where the pollution is being put. It's actually, you know, people who live in low lying areas all over the world and island nations and people who have been targets of colonialism. And so any social movement silos are always fake. They've always been set up usually by elites framing the issues in stories that are not true, right? And so we need to reframe the stories so that we all see our connections. And so we're like, oh, actually, I'm in the same boat as you. That somebody who is like really concerned about the well-being of animals is in the same boat as somebody who's thinking about ending the police. Because any kind of effective movement against capitalist extraction from the environment is going to be heavily policed. So we all need to be anti-police because any movement you're in, as soon as it gets effective, the police are going to come down on you. So we should all be anti police, which means we also know about the history of policing in the United States. So we should all be anti-racist and really, really care about anti-Black racism. And we should all be thinking about the legal system in the United States and like colonialism and like how colonialism has determined all of these extractive projects and you know, endangered animals and humans. Like So that kind of process and that colonialism requires heteropatriarchy. And so we really need to understand how sexism works. And so that process of like seeing that we're in the same boat and that if we are in the same fight, we're more likely to win against this incredibly small group of people who dominate the conditions of everyone's lives on the entire planet, right? And that we want to learn to see all those connections and the issues and to also practice in the day-to-day, -day, practice that together by being like, what would our meeting tonight look like if we cared about making sure it was accessible to people with disabilities? And what would our conversation about this new jail building process look like if we were really in deep relationship with the indigenous 
indigenous people on whose land this jail is? And what would, you know, all those kinds of questions. Like when I teach it with my students, it's like, I imagine I'm holding lenses like, okay, what happens if I look at this through an environmental justice lens? What happens if I look at this through a feminist lens? What happens if I look at this through a disability justice lens? And being like, we're going to use all the lenses all the time. We're not going to like only look at this through one lens and have single issue politics that produce some really dangerous things. Like when people have single issue politics, they often join up with people who should be their enemies. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, oh yeah, this candidate vote voted well on this gay thing. So that's great. We don't care that they're anti-abortion or we don't care that they like supported the construction of a new jail or that they, and that happens a lot. Um, and that's the pinkwashing. Like you see like a lot of mayors and governors and stuff in recent years and presidents being like, oh yeah, we love gay marriage. Meanwhile, let's kill all the poor people. We want to make sure we don't get fooled into joining agendas that actually aren't beneficial when most queer people are disproportionately poor. So if they, if this candidate says they love gay people, but they hate poor people, they actually hate gay people. And so just moving past that kind of single issue politics requires this de-siloing. And that's a lot of work because of these histories of elites, I would say, of elites creating social movement frames that are single issue and exclusive. And so that you could imagine like a gay, a pro-military gay politics. I mean, that should be unimaginable, but it is, it's very imaginable, very visible. And so we have to really do a lot of unpacking to, that's just the storytelling is so important because the storytelling about our lives, about how our lives are actually interconnected, rather than the lie that they are in these silos can help us build that solidarity. I just want to mention here, I don't know if you are aware of it, there's this new movement of F- minus, where just bringing some of these unholy alliances to light and in terms of lobbyists, uh, a lot of people don't know that the same lobbyists for the fossil fuel companies are often also aligned with um, LGBTQ movements or arts groups or whatever, and it does that greenwashing, but I mean pinkwashing. It's a way of, you know, having things passed in your name, not even realizing it. That's so interesting. I didn't know about F minus and I'm really happy to hear that. And for me, there's just a broader thing about divesting from legislation as the way we're going to win our fight. Like the U.S. legal system or the Washington or Seattle or whatever legal system I'm in is a colonial legal system that is designed to preserve capitalist extraction and all the racial dynamics required to produce racial capitalism. Of course, this system is already completely captured by our opponents. And anything that looks like it's good for us is probably actually not. And that is really hard for people to digest because we're told that law is where, I mean, I, I think it goes so deep. Even people who I think really are trying to push that out of their mind, it's still so easy for us to think, oh, if we could get the right law, it would work. And I just like always want to direct people to all the times in which we've supposedly won the right law and it's never implemented. People don't actually get what they're supposed to get, undermined in any number of ways, or it can get flipped all the time. Like the, the law and the books is not happening on the streets. The police are not supposed to kill people all the time and they just do. There is no rule of law. We live in actually like, lawless, brutal domination under a set of systems that are incredibly resilient and are able to reframe and sometimes rely on the law and sometimes be extra legal and all that works out fine for them. And so we really need to have our like imagination of liberation not be constrained by law. If people, you know, I want to see movements that embolden our tactics. Like I'm very moved by the bold tactics being used in Atlanta, the Stop Cop City Forest Defenders movement to stop this giant police training facility that people like occupying the forest and be like, no, you can't come build it here. Or burning down the equipment of the of the people trying to tear down the forest or people blocking oil pipelines all over the world or you know, that kind of direct action where we're like, no, you can't do it. That's what's required now. Like asking endlessly from the dominant system to treat us differently or be different than it is, like it doesn't work. And it's, I think this is a frustrating dynamic in our social movements is like the kind of endless appeal. Like maybe we can get it to work this time. And I think it's really useful for us to really be like, okay, the clock is ticking, especially on ecological collapse. Like 
wow, we need to save each other's lives. There's such a long history and current reality of people doing mutual aid that is sort of beyond the law. Like example people talk about a lot now is Jane, the, the people in Chicago in the 1970s who provided abortions because abortion was illegal. Like just being like, yeah, we're not going to follow the law. We're going to make sure our community has what it needs. Whether that's tearing down the infrastructure of our opponents, like blocking pipelines, or whether that's giving each other what we believe we need, even if the law says we can't. And that feels like, to me, that kind of emboldened, like we are powerful. We know that we can set up the social relations instead of having to wait for elites to deliver them and twiddle our thumbs and be stressed out and watch our communities die. I came to know Dean Spade's work through my graduate program studying culture and social movements. I started to become disillusioned as I gained more information on how our system, political, social, medical, and otherwise, is designed with a false post-racial and post-gendered facade, wherein laws meant to offer protection do little to support communities continually subjected to dangerous and life-threatening circumstances. What I love about Dean Spade's work is his passion to ignite mutual aid within communities. Spade emphatically argues that the law will not be the savior people think it will be because the law itself, no matter how well-intentioned it may seem, sprouts from a system of racist ideology and settler colonialism. The laws were never meant to work within the favor of the most vulnerable to begin with. Spade explains this through his deconstruction of the neoliberal landscape, a veneer that offers charity and nonprofits as solutions, when really these are often funded by corporations or the exorbitantly wealthy who succumb to shaking hands with the institutions or policies they intended to bring down in the first place. Further, Spade talks with Mia about pinkwashing, which, to briefly sum up, is the use of gay and lesbian liberation within the military or government system, which only further alienates the most defenseless members of the queer and trans community. If the system continually fails us, then what does Spade offer to his students and peers? Our discussion of mutual aid in this interview was highly enlightening. Just listing the examples Spade presents, mutual aid can look like a pen pal system with prisoners to assist them upon release and finding work and housing. It can mean working with your local trans community to ensure access to hormones. It can simply be the act of learning and absorbing more information to better serve your neighbors or protect families and individuals from police violence. Before returning to Mia and Dean, take a moment to consider what mutual aid can look like in your own community. Later in his chat with Mia, Spade discusses what he calls trickle-up justice, the act of attending to the individuals and communities in the most danger. When we consider and approach solutions with the most vulnerable in mind, the rest will follow. And now, back to the interview. Just hearing you speak about rejecting the concept of like the law is what's going to save us. You talk a lot about the difference between subjection and oppression in your work as terms related to power dynamics and how power dynamics are usually more complex than we tend to boil them down to. And in the light of a lot of dangerous legislation that's coming out, this ecological collapse. Could you expand on the term subjection and how that can relate to us better actively attending to these uh, dangerous legislations, this ecological collapse, the concept of providing mutual aid? Yeah, especially in normal life, I, I was trying to talk about how we kind of misconceive power. And I was really relying heavily on the work of Michel Foucault for anyone who wants to go dig their own into that more deeply. Um, but th- I'm not going to do justice to Michel Foucault. I'll just say how I understand it. So I think often think of power as very top down. It's like when someone tells you, like, you can't come in here, you can't do that. And what that is one way that power works. But power also works through 
things that we might consider more insidious, like norms. So like one way that power works is like it sets norms. So it's not just you can't be like that. Don't wear that because you're a girl. It's also teaching you from early childhood to think of yourself in a gendered role and then self-enforce. So there's a whole world of like us all enforcing on ourselves, all the norms of society. I need to be good. I need to be in my own racial category, gender category, a million, million, million unconscious rules that we embody. Like I need to be seen as good so that I'll survive. It's pretty high stakes in childhood and it continues to be like, oh, don't go out alone. And there's high stakes, like you'll be arrested if you're talking to yourself on the street or, or you'll, you won't pass your grade or you'll not get a job. We live in a society that lets people fall to the very bottom. So norms are another way that power works, us enforcing them on each other. So another piece of our social movement work can be like, oh, wait, where are we enforcing these on each other? Are there things we're doing in our own social movement group or in our friend circles that are actually enforcing fat phobia or enforcing sexism or racism between us. So the, the question about norms, how are they already in my head and in my behavior and how can we um, collectively defy them? And like, I think there's a lot of fun examples of that and, you know, Black liberation culture and queer culture and so many people being like, like, let's be the ways we want to be and not be according to white European sexist cultural norms. And then another kind of way that power works that I talk about in normal life is through like population management, which is the ways that whole big systems, like the system of having ID and the system of having databases that all of us are in and the system of immigration that, ha that has all these standards inside it that are like gender markers on ID or rules in immigration, which health tests you need to take and what kinds of police contact you need to not have had. Like those kinds of things or what, even what country you're from and what the immigration quotas are and what the visa quotas are. And the, all of that stuff manages us in a really big way, like a population control way that's like these people get in and these people stay out or these people are shuttled towards health and these people are shuttled towards like like, you know, there's no hospital in this whole area of, of the state or people who have these markers on, on their IDs can't get these medications. It's like something we fought a lot with around trans access to healthcare and Medicaid. So that whole part of the work, that kind of systemic, like how we all get most of our lives are actually determined not by anything like that we did or our parents did, but by like you were just born in this neighborhood and sorry, there's like really dirty air and water there. And like you're more likely to have asthma or cancer, you know, like that stuff where there's not like one dude at the top who planned it, you know, so it's not like there's one guy being like, don't do this. It's like a really complex system of maldistribution of life chances. And so we are produced as subjects at all these levels that make our lives shorter, literally, or that make us be more likely to have certain kinds of violence happen to us, right? Make us be more likely to have certain kinds of jobs or school access or whatever. And so what we want to do is think about resistance in all those places. And so that it starts to feel actually like there's a lot more resistance possible. If I just thought all I could resist was when someone says, don't do that, it's very limited. And then part of the problem, too, is like if you think all power is when they say don't do that, like if they say don't be gay, that's disgusting, that's wrong, then you will miss that they might say gay is wonderful while they use that to kill people. <laughs> like they might put more cops on the street being like to save the gays and actually those cops will arrest and hurt queer and trans people. And if you'd be bold, right, if you only thought power was when they said, don't do something. Then whenever they say, we love you guys, and we're like, oh, they're like, look, oh, there's black people in, in the government now, so everything's great. And then they still have anti-black policies. You'd miss it, right? Like This is a part of the problem with like, kind of identity reductionism or like believing that representation is enough. Like, oh, I saw trans people on TV. It must be great now. Or they hired one trans cop and the cops must be loving trans people. So I think this kind of question about how we see power and the complex ways that power works helps us be more savvy about our resistance and see that resistance is possible at all these layers and actually necessary at all these layers. And it helps us be more savvy about the smart ways our opponents reframe themselves. Like, the main in neoliberalism, our opponents reframe themselves as the saviors of the very groups of people that their systems target. So the United States 
you know, starting with the civil rights movement, tells us that U.S. law protects people against racism. At the exact same moment, it turns up policing, imprisonment, and immigration enforcement so that more people of color than ever are living in cages or have an ankle monitor or are on probation or dealing with the police. That contradiction is only visible if we're like, oh, they can say one thing out of one side of their mouth and they can have all these systems that are ostensibly race neutral, no longer Jim Crow. It doesn't say on it, you can have this or not have this based on your racial category but it produces targeted racialized outcomes. I just would love to follow that up with speaking about understanding the different power dynamics. And we previously talked about there being more LGBTQIA representation in media and mass media. A lot more conversations are happening at home between family members and friends that maybe weren't happening before. And you have terms in your writing like illegitimate authority or structured abandonment. And I really like those terms because they provide such clarity so I, I would love to hear your thoughts on building a vocabulary for critical dance politics, for abolition, for mutual aid, in order to better discuss these topics, not only those who aren't familiar, but to better understand how these systems around us operate and our ways to take part and potentially dismantling them. Yeah. I mean, I love words and I love to try to think about how to say things in ways that help us understand things. And also I'm hesitant about new jargon. So I try to be really thoughtful. Like it was a decision in my in normal life back in 2009 to be like most people I knew in the United States didn't know the word neoliberalism. And I was like, you know what? This is globally an important word in social movements. I'm going to define it and introduce it, even though it sounds like a big word to a lot of people because I want people to be in conversation with more movements globally, and this might help them. I want people who are reading this book or in my queer and trans movements to have that. But I, but I try to be cautious about how much to either use terms that might be hard for people when actually I think all this stuff is common sense and also how much to invent new terms. I do feel that caution, like how to keep things pretty accessible to people. And obviously there's no universally accessible language because yeah, there's more queer trans people on TV compared to when I was a kid. I didn't know queer trans people existed except for maybe some vague sense that like, something called a faggot was on TV as a joke or something, you know what I mean? But like, I didn't know I could be queer. I just want to say a lot of my work is about rejecting progress narratives. And that can be really hard when there's been a moment of mainstreaming because it looks like progress, but actually there's usually something insidious also going on plus backlash that's targeted at certain people. So I want to say, I love that you chose the term structure and abandonment because I've just been in a conversation lately with a lot of people about how I no longer think that's a useful term because what I think when I thought about that term at the time, I was thinking about the ways, and I was partly building off the work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, a very brilliant abolitionist scholar. People talk about abandonment. They talk about how there'll be a whole part of town where there's no hospital or where nobody's testing and cleaning the water, you know, and that kind of thing, the kind of like the sense that certain communities have been abandoned by the state. And I actually think that now that's the wrong way to think about it because it's not abandonment. What's actually happening is that they've got the boot on your neck and make your community impoverished, unable to care for yourself, force you into these really brutal systems to get the care you need, and then make sure it's not in certain places. So it's not abandonment. It's highly active decision. It's actually targeted debt. My fundamental belief about what the state is, it's something that makes us unable to care for ourselves the way humans always have, and instead forces us to get our care through these racial capitalist systems so that there's no way to get housing besides through paying rent or buying a house. We're forced into an extractive, exploited system. So people are forced to not be able to care for each other and ourselves, except for through their systems. And then some people are zoned to not have access to what those systems are supposed to provide, like extremely, you live in a food desert or you live in a 
more toxic area or whatever. I think social movements do come up with terms. One of the things we do is we change the language all the time. It's a way of always newly trying to name the oppression and the visions for liberation. And I think it's great that people have always new terms for what we're going to call parts of our community or all of that means we're alive and resisting. And as a writer and a speaker, I try to be like, can I not overly jargonize everything. And if I want to use a big word that a lot of people don't know, make sure I say what it is. I just really want a lot of this stuff to be easy for lots of people to come into from different experiences. And I also love to read things that are more dense that people write that I think have a, a different kind of role in our movements. There have been advances in the last five years. That's immense. And then as you say, there's also illusory freedoms. And so it's balancing that, like what's actually the change to the experiences. And I was wondering, as you think about your reflections on AI and the new technologies, it's possible for us to live disembodied lives, to imagine that we can be anything, we can dream anything. And what are your reflections on that? Because it's also kind of complicated because it's also opened up a kind of Pandora's box with social media and bullying and all these things where you can be anything you want to be and you can also be hated by lots of people on the internet, total strangers. Yeah. In general, I think it's really useful to remember when we talk about technologies that the technologies we use are all designed for military and capitalist and surveillance and police purposes. So any technology I'm using is probably using me better than I'm using it. So the fantasy that like I'm going to say the right thing on social media and it's going to free people. No, social media is like definitely designed to isolate us and mediate our social needs through corporate platforms so that people can make a lot of money. It definitely was not made to free queer and trans people or people of color, you know, to end colonial. And all the technologies we're talking about, even once people get really excited about, they tend to be like completely environmentally unsustainable, right? Like it all requires like conflict minerals. So there's numerous things. I, I'm just very suspicious of technological solutions to anything. Um, there's an author named Jem Bendel, who's somebody I really think is very interesting, who writes a lot about ecological crisis and societal collapse. Breaking Together is a new book who does a great job of breaking down a lot of the things people hope will be the tech solutions for the ecological crisis, like lab-made meat and nuclear power and electric cars and all this stuff. And he just shows how every single one of them is like brutally, brutally unsustainable, requires like enormous destruction and is about the fantasy of keeping the current industrial consumer lifestyle going for the few people in the world who are able to access it and at the cost of all people, animals and plants on the planet. And I think it's really instructive for thinking about any technology because it's just like the hope of tech solutions is, is very similar, actually, to the hope of legal solutions. And it's just like, no, <laughs> like it's like that's the answers are not going to come from these legal systems or from these systems of developing technology. At the same time, obviously, like I want us to have technologies such as medicines and other things. And the question becomes, can we produce those not through these extractive systems? Like, can we produce if we know that ecological collapse is coming and people are not going to have what they need and people already don't have what they need, also our healthcare system comes through those same unsustainable broken channels. And so I think that kind of how to think about technology as something that's been developed in ways that are like as extractive and har harmful as possible. And like, what can we steal from it and produce in other ways that are going to be able to be with us as we face these growing disasters and reduce the ongoing harms that are happening from all the technologies that we use. And I think there's plenty of examples of people all over the world doing that. But I think there's also a lot of passivity and like just hope that a tech solution will arrive that I think is it's time to like be incredibly critical about. Exactly. It doesn't happen alone. It has changes of behaviors, changing mindsets, and then the legal framework. But yes, all those things hopefully operating in tandem 
or nudged on by each other. So you talk about some really pressing issues and what for you are the, like the most pressing issues currently facing the transgender community? I think the most pressing issues for trans people in, in the U.S., in the context I'm in, tend to be housing criminalization and immigration enforcement and generally poverty. And I think the best things that I think people can do about those things are all these mutual aid projects. Like I'm really interested in this group, Thorn Self-Defense. They make these self-defense kits and send them to, to mostly black trans people all over the country that have like a baton and like pepper spray and like a seatbelt cutter. And people have saved their own lives with having these things. Like that's just so terrifying, but it's so basic. I'm really moved by the work of Margaret Killjoy. She's a, a trans woman who's really thinking about community self-defense and in the context of disaster and disruption of basic services that are happening in lots of places and are going to get worse, but also in the context of fascists attacking trans people. So she's got a lot of great stuff to say about community self-defense, about how people can be ready to help each other in these moments. I think that stuff is something we should all be studying and we could all be doing that ranges from just like carry a tourniquet because there's a lot of gunshot wounds that happen and a tourniquet could save someone's life. I'm really moved by people distributing hormones across you know, their own jurisdictions and across state lines, projects where people are trying to house people coming out of prison and foster care. That's really hard and complicated, but like the basic thing of just even starting a spreadsheet and being like, who has free rooms and I'm part of a lot of groups where we support people coming out of prisons and jails, just stuff that'll help them not get rearrested and quickly put back in the system. You know, people doing a lot of prison letter writing projects like Black and Pink, um, but also other prison letter writing projects all over the country that are writing to queer and trans prisoners so that people like breaking that isolation, helping people prepare for release, helping people have advocacy about what's happening to them while they're inside that can be, you know, obviously life-threatening. I think all of that, you know, people accompanying people to Medicaid appointments, that's where it's at. It's just like the basic survival. And when we build projects around supporting that in each other, we build a lot of solidarity. We build a lot of political capacity. We also build our ability to then do other things like organize a rent strike. The trans people in this building are going to organize the other tenants. Or let's support the transit worker strike. Like being part of the big moments of mobilization that is that dovetails with being organized with each other in terms of basic survival. So to me, that's like the role of mutual aid in mobilizing us and also helping us survive the really deadly conditions that are facing our communities right now. Yeah. So despite all the challenges, I can hear the active hope, which is not just passive, let you know, make it make the change you want to be. Uh, and so you're a teacher and as you think about the future and as you talk to your students, how do you maintain that hope? What were some teachers that were important to you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Yeah, I think that hope is really complicated because we're sold. We are sold a very thin hope, as you're referring to. So I really always I think a lot of my students experience my classes first as like very depressing because they're finding out how things really are. And it sucks, you know, and like a lot of my students want to go work in a nonprofit and they're like, oh, God, most of what most nonprofit organizations do is really controlled by funders and is not actually very radical and is actually quite system affirming. And a lot of even if I want to provide direct services to people in crisis, I'm going to be told by my funders I can't support people who are undocumented or I can't support people who have felonies. You know, they've been sold how they're going to fit into changing the world or helping people. And then it's like in my classes, we find out it's all a lot harder and more complicated than we knew and that the historical stories of progress we've learned are like not true. And so I think that's actually useful. Like disillusionment is an important part of having like a grounded sense of what's possible and figuring out like, what do I want to do with my short life? What's actually working? Because I think also a lot of people get a job somewhere and then they know this tactic doesn't work, but they're like, well, I got to pay rent. And so a lot of us get sucked into being part of systems and feel like disempowered, like nothing's really changing and we're not really part of any collective action. So a major emphasis for me with my students is the work you do that's most transformative in your life will not be paid. Don't look to try to like have your social movement role 
be coming from being paid because all the paid work is being paid for by the government or rich people, and they are not interested in funding strategies that will work. <laughs> so like the more radical stuff, the more direct action stuff, the more collective action stuff is not paid. To have a critique of the nonprofit system and those limits of legislative advocacy and the stuff that we're pushed into, that's another thing I want that as a takeaway for them. And just to have experiences of collective action to study you know, my dream would be that all my students would be as obsessed as I am with just studying social movements, historic and contemporary. Like, what have people tried? What happened? Did it work? Did it not work? What was more than really cool moments? Is there any of that stuff we should try? Or what did they learn about why it didn't work or why that wouldn't work now, even though it worked in 1960? That's the question of our lives is how are we going to get out of some of this? How is anyone going to survive this? And so being like, oh, I don't have to just be really upset about how terrible things are. I can study. I can read. I can watch documentaries. I can listen to podcasts. I can find out what people have tried and are trying. And it's like endless and it's beautiful. And it's not going to give me a definitive plan. It's like, oh, no, I'm in it with everybody else. I need to be in study groups with other people. I need to be in groups where we're like trying to hash out and really being in it together in a curious, open way. For me, that's like that makes me want to live. And it's really hard to be alive right now because things are really bleak. And so it's not about turning away from that bleakness. It's about being like, wow, this is a level of urgency. How can this motivate me to do things I really care about and to not do things I don't care about? So your sense of urgency and vision is really inspiring. Thank you, Dean Spade, for sharing your journey, transgender activism, what we can do to advance legislation and within our own communities to change conditions for people's lives so that we are all truly equal under law, respected and valued. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thanks for having me. It's really fun to talk to you all. Thanks for the great questions. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Monica Baker with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Monica Baker. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.